Welcome to Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting September 13th. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, the nuclear option, nuclear energy that is, we'll talk about that with MIT physicist Ernest Moniz, who also co-directs MIT's Laboratory for Energy and the Environment. David Holmes of Manchester Metropolitan University in England joins us. He blows the doors off the commonly held belief that mice like cheese. That's a little later. And we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. First up, Ernest Moniz. He's the co-author of an article on the future of nuclear energy that appears in the September single topic issue of Scientific American, the theme of the entire issue, Energy's Future Beyond Carbon. I caught up with Moniz while he was trying to do some fly fishing in Colorado. Professor Moniz, thanks very much for talking to us today. Pleasure to be here. Uh, in 2003, you and your co-author co-chaired this big MIT study on the future of nuclear energy in which you analyzed what you'd have to do to make nuclear energy attractive. I don't know if you can do this in short order, but what was the bottom line there? Uh, again, the question we ask uh, is, is, what are the steps that one would take, both uh, in, a, in a technology sense and in a policy sense, to enable nuclear power to be a significant contributor uh, to mitigating uh, CO2 emissions. Uh, clearly, we outlined uh, what, are, what are the major challenges. Uh, first, uh, the economics uh, do need to be uh, worked on. Um, uh, roughly speaking, uh, it's about $2,000 a kilowatt for a nuclear plant, and uh, you might say the competition uh, natural gas uh, plant is more in the five or $600 range for capital costs. But, of course, nuclear power is very cheap to operate in contrast uh, to a gas plant. Secondly, uh, nuclear waste obviously must be uh, uh, must be addressed. Uh, we offer some uh, uh, suggestions there, uh, including the incorporation of consolidated inter- interim storage uh, as part of the uh, of the plan. Uh, safety uh, clearly is an issue, and there we note uh, really that the new designs of nuclear power plants. Uh, look to have about an order of magnitude lower probability of uh, significant uh, core damage. Uh, next, we look at proliferation, and we suggest a an approach uh, to uh, managing growth of the of the fuel cycle internationally, uh, based upon a fuel leasing concept in which small programs could, on very good terms, uh, be provided fresh fuel and have the spent fuel removed. And, and by, finally, by proliferation, we're talking about the the fear of uh, any of the nuclear plants being used to create the kind of materials you need for nuclear weapons. Correct. So the point being in this fuel leasing concept is that uh, these countries would have the reactors, which gives them what they presumably want, which is electricity, and would not have uh, the responsibility uh, or the cost of uh, building plants to enrich uranium or to handle the spent fuel. Right. Now, that's assuming that what they really want is the electricity. That's right. This will not solve every problem, but it will help to put a spotlight on those who have other designs. Right. And you had a fifth point you wanted to make? And the fifth point was that uh, we also uh, spell out what we believe uh, is an important uh, and aggressive uh, research and development plan uh, for the government uh, to uh, to pursue over the next uh, several several decades. Uh, and that includes, as high points, uh, the need to um, to advance smaller modular reactors. Uh, it includes the need to do the research on what are called advanced fuel cycles, fuel cycles that potentially 
could dramatically minimize the problems of dealing with spent fuel uh, and with proliferation. How ironic is it that it is is actually environmental concerns that are driving this fresh look at nuclear energy? It's the greenhouse gases that are making nuclear look more attractive to a lot of people again, right? Well, uh, to to many, of course, uh, some are looking at it for for uh, for other reasons, um, uh, including at least <laughs> arguments they use about about security, uh, about having uh, stable uh, and understood operating costs. Who who are you talking about when you say some? Who are, who is that? Uh, well, I think uh, many of the utilities that are looking at uh, at nuclear power are looking at it for a ver- a combination of reasons. One of them certainly is. Um, the, uh, I think many feel imminent, uh, U.S. move to begin to control carbon emissions. Um, but in addition, there are issues of the volatility, for example, of natural gas prices, uh, has uh, wreaked, uh, some degree of havoc, uh, with, with the utilities. because there, there you are subject to the fuel cost being a major part of your operating costs. Whereas in a nuclear plant, you have a very a very large capital expenditure up front. But once you've built it, you pretty much know that you're going to have a very low and stable operating cost okay. because the fuel costs are a very, very tiny part of the overall cost. In the article, it talks about the fact that in, in your scenario, worldwide nuclear power production could triple to a million megawatts by the year 2050, and that would save between 0.8 and 1.8 billion tons of carbon from being emitted into the atmosphere every year. So what does all that mean? What do those numbers actually mean to me if I'm concerned about greenhouse gases and global warming? Well, uh, two two scales, I think, are, are important here. Uh, one is, as is outlined in the uh, lead article in the Scientific American uh, issue, uh, is that in very rough terms, uh, we need to avoid uh, about 7 billion tons per year of carbon emission, uh, let's say by mid-century, uh, if we are to come anywhere close to what many think is a prudent level of uh, CO2 concentrations. So, so roughly speaking, if a technology uh, is not going to contribute at least at, say, the billion-ton level, uh, it's not really going to be a major contributor to the solution. On the other side of the of the, of, of the equation, if you like, uh, uh, one thousand megawatts of coal plant, which is a very large, uh, but you know, a, a coal coal plants that we that that we do have, uh, that plant it alone would emit about one point seven one point eight million tons of carbon per year. So, as you can see, a thousand thousand megawatt plants of nuclear, which is which is carbon free, uh, would avoid one point eight billion tons if it were displacing coal plants. Right, right. But of course it, it would it would be displacing a mixture of plants uh, and that's why we would say that uh, this uh, uh, million megawatts of nuclear power deployed I, I would say you take credit for the order of one billion tons okay. uh, avoided. When was the last nuclear power plant completed and put online in the U.S.? Uh, the last plant in the United States was brought online in the uh, mid-90s, but of course was ordered in the early 70s. 
When you were Undersecretary of Energy in the, in the Clinton administration, and you were also uh, Associate Director for Science in the Office of Science and Technology Policy, what was the overriding attitude about nuclear then, and has it changed? Well, I think there has been a, a significant change uh, in the last uh, in the last ten years, um, uh, really, with with the realization that uh, the climate problem uh, is a very very serious one. First of all, many I think most people are coming to the to the to the view that certainly prudence requires. Uh, some strong actions, uh, particularly actions that are synergistic with other goals, like energy security uh, and other environmental uh, uh, questions. Uh, but having realized, I think, uh, quite broadly, that this is a very serious problem that needs serious attention, uh, I think has also led to a realization that it's a very, very difficult uh, challenge. And so in that context, I think many who would rather not uh, be seeing new nuclear power plants are at a minimum, uh, uh, you know, understanding that we we can't afford to be dismissing uh, carbon-free options lightly because this will be a major challenge uh, to uh, to reach prudent goals. Professor Moniz, uh, the article "The Nuclear Option" by John Deutsch and Ernest J. Moniz. That's in the September issue of Scientific American, Energy's Future Beyond Carbon. Thank you very much. Appreciate your time. You're welcome. One of the big issues in nuclear energy is waste management, and the article goes into detail about proposals in that area. You can find the article in the current Scientific American and in its entirety for free at our website, www.siam.com. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, but only three are true. See if you know which story is Totally Bogus. Story one, robotic death frisbees being developed for urban warfare. Story two, since Pluto is no longer a planet, it has a new name, asteroid 134340. Story three, female sheep, deer, and reindeer can all recognize the calls of their own offspring. And story four, lifting weights can temporarily increase the pressure within your eyes. We'll be back with the answer, but first, mice love cheese. Or do they? David Holmes at Manchester Metropolitan University set out to prove alone whether that was indeed the case. He was good enough to chatter away with me from his office in England. Dr. Holmes, thanks for talking to us today. And thanking you. Tell me about uh, cheese and mice. What 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 were the results of uh, your research here? Well, it's kind of a very, very, very strange and long story in that somewhere, somehow in history, um, it's in Shakespeare and it's on oil paintings, so it predates all that. And it certainly predates Tom and Jerry and, and all the other kind of cartoon mice that somehow or other people have got the strange idea that mice actually do like cheese and they will try and feed it to their pets, which can be rather damaging. Um, in fact, mice, as we have probably known for many, many years, and most pet shop uh, owners know very, very well, uh, actually like grain and dried fruit and to some degree they will go for kind of foods, man-made foods that are high in sugar such as chocolate and they will try and raid your pantry for things like dried foods such as even pasta um, but they like their high carbohydrate and they don't like cheese. We don't have any idea how this idea became entrenched in the human psyche? 
I have thrashed away at this, and it is very difficult. All we can imagine is that original early pantries contained only a few dried elements, such as grain, bread, and uh, possibly cheese, and maybe these got trashed by mice and rats in early days, and people made this assumption. But um, as far as I can tell, that it's become extremely popular and part of the sort of modern myth and into the minds of children and adults because of cartoonists. Cartoonists like to draw little segments of cheese with holes in them and little mouses' faces poking out of them. And they will admit this and they say quite simply, it's a really good image, it's the kind of image we can use and it's the kind of image we will continue to use even though we know that mice don't like cheese. So it was possibly some artist 500 years ago who just liked the image? I would have said possibly that this worked. I would imagine there must be some mythical story or some form of folklore that has actually produced association between mice and cheese. And the cartoonists and the very early painters have picked up on this and they've used this very strong image, which people recognize very quickly. In the corner of an oil painting, you would see a kind of small segment of cheese and a mouse next to it. And you make the assumption straight away that the mouse is after the cheese. And it would appear that this has permeated. You know, it's, it's almost as big a myth as the kind of, you know, the moon is made of green cheese uh, type um, myth misnomer that people accept as some kind of fact. But of course, the serious side is that people do try and feed their pet mice cheese, thinking they're doing a good thing. And that can actually be harmful to the pet. That can be harmful to the pet. It's not really what they want. And they usually definitely turn their nose up at um, pungent cheeses such as Stilton, uh, rich cheeses. Uh, these things are made for the gourmet taste of human beings. They are not made for mice. And in all of the mouse's evolution, it did not come across cheese. Now, uh, in the interest of full disclosure, you mentioned Stilton. And uh, this research was funded in part or, or in full, I'm not sure. Um, it was very minimally funded by Stilton. Um, their, their interest was kind of like a little bit obscure. Uh, I'd like to say they had a healthy interest in, in scotching the rumors that cheese was for mice um, and, and cheese was not for mice, but cheese was actually for humans, which would make some sense. Um, but the idea that cheese is not a good thing for mice, I don't see that as being the best marketing campaign. So um, I carried this out honestly and uh, mostly with the idea that perhaps I might save a few mice from having cheese rammed down their throats uh, inadvertently by uh, very young pet owners. And, um, you know, sort of basically examining the idea of why we have these myths, where they come from and why they get perpetuated. That was my interest, and I don't know whether that actually matches the interest of the sponsors themselves. Which was the, the Stilton Cheese Makers Association. That, it was and, definitely the Stilton Cheese Makers Association. And that, w uh, when you say minimally funded, you mean that, that there wasn't a lot, not a lot of funding in general went into this study? Well, I would have thought in American research terms, this funding was so close to zero that it wouldn't make any difference. What, what was the... Uh... The actual, what, what was it, 50 pounds? Is that what they... Uh... Hey, you hit it dead on the head. That's exactly <laughs> what I got. <laughs> it was 50 pounds, yes. What, how did you actually do this research? Uh, I just, it didn't take very long to, to run through archival stuff that, you know, documents exactly what kind of things that um, are good for uh, animals and various animals and small species, uh, such as mice. I see. Uh, whether they happen to be field mice, house mice, um, pet trained mice or even mice for research, which we don't do, by the way. Right. Um, 
then the, their diets are pretty much the same and they're not that far removed from other animals. But that said, if you get a, a house mouse that has been really starved uh, and desperate, they will chew at most things. Um, but needless to say, the last, one of the last things that they will chew at will be that rich cheese. Sure, they actually prefer electrical lines to uh, to cheese. They, will, they I think. will eat your feet. Right. Speaking of cheese, so what? Uh, tell tell us what your what your actual primary research is about, because I'm sure this is not your your full time research area. No, my my primary research is, is usually along the lines of forensic research and uh, clinical psychology. Uh, that's my main field, and um, I'm actually in the process of trying to produce an extremely large book. Uh, that incorporates the whole of that subject area, hopefully for the first time. Forensic psychology? Uh, clinical and forensic psychology, yeah. Uh-huh. That's the kind of um, applying um, psychology to crime and courts in a very practical way. Very interesting. Well, uh, when that book comes out, let's let's talk again and, uh, and talk about that serious subject, because that's fascinating. I think it is probably the most fascinating area of psychology. Dr. Holmes, thank you very much. Uh, enjoy the rest of your day and, uh, and have some cheese. And thank you, and I might try it. <laughs> For more cheese info, just go to www.cheese.com. Seriously. Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories. Story one, robotic armed frisbees under development for urban warfare. Story two, non-planet Pluto's new name is a number. Story three, female sheep, deer, and reindeer can all identify their own offspring vocally. And story four, temporary pressure increase in the eyes from weightlifting. Time's up. Story one is true. Killer frisbees are a coming. The website defensetech.org reports that the Air Force has a contract out for an attempt to develop what they're calling modular disc wing urban cruise munitions. Those would be small spinning discs that could root out and blow up, you know, evildoers. And you thought you played Ultimate Frisbee. Story two is true. Pluto's demotion means that it's just an asteroid, and the Minor Planet Center, which officially keeps tabs on asteroids and comets, has named it 134340. You know, back on the August 16th podcast, I spoke with three-year-old Ari Mursky about his great affection for Pluto, then still a planet. This is my favorite. Well, I heard that Ari wasn't happy at all with Pluto's recent demotion, and when I saw him this past Sunday and asked if he wanted to talk about it, his response was simply, no. Story four is true. Lifting weights can make your muscles and your eyes bulge, according to a report in the current archives of ophthalmology. Higher intraocular pressure is associated with the Valsalva maneuver, where you hold a full breath and force it against a closed windpipe, like this. This happens during coughing, weightlifting, certain kinds of smoking, and playing wind instruments. Pumped-up cannabis-inhaling bassoon players with colds are at particular risk. All of which means that story three about sheep, deer, and reindeer mothers being able to recognize the calls of their own offspring is totally bogus. 
because while sheep and reindeer can, deer cannot. Researchers from the University of Zurich did the study published in the American Naturalist. In sheep and reindeer, which spend most of their time out in the open, the young and the moms do know each other vocally. And while young deer do recognize their mothers by the mom's sounds, the mothers cannot distinguish their own fawns by call alone. The researchers think that the communication system has evolved this way because young deer hide from predators in the grass while the mother forages. Presumably, the young know or quickly learn that calling mom won't get her attention, which keeps them quiet, and that keeps them safe. They only move when she calls them. Don't you wish your kids behaved that, uh, you know, dearly? Well, that's it for this edition of the Scientific American Podcast. Our email address is podcast at siam.com. And also remember Science News, updated daily on the Scientific American website, www.siam.com. And don't forget the September special issue, the single topic issue of Scientific American Magazine, Energy's Future Beyond Carbon. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. <laughs> 